Before we start the show, if you want more stock talking, check out my newsletter at tinyletter.com slash bbrostoff or visit postcoronastocks.com. You can find me on Twitter at at BMB21. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Stock Talking, an exploration of financial markets in the context of the post-corona world. COVID-19 has changed the way we value equity, debt, and business as a whole. My goal is to find great companies who can thrive in the new normal. I can't wait to get started. All right, welcome to another episode of Stock Talking. My guest today is Ryan Reeves. He is the CEO and founder of Investing City, which just has an amazing blog uh, podcast. Uh, Ryan is one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter. I feel like I get a ton of ideas uh, from all his content, so super pumped to have him on the show. Uh, Ryan, welcome to the show. Well, well, thank you so much for that introduction. Appreciate it, Ben. I figured we could start off by talking about a really interesting podcast you had on some of your investing resolutions for 2020. Um, to me, that pod really got at um, how you think about distributing your time and getting the highest return on your time. Um, so I'd love if you kind of walk us through some of those resolutions and how they guide your process day to day. Yeah, sure. So I, yeah, I just put out this podcast sort of at the, the beginning of the year, just a little bit of a resolution, a New Year's thing. And so, yeah, I'll just go through them. It's, it's five quick ones. But the first one is more reading, less financial news. And I mean, I, so in college, I worked for an asset or it was really just like a financial advisor and they had CNBC blaring the entire day. And I really just could not focus. And it really makes you focus on just the, the short term. And, and I'm just really not a fan of that. Um, second one is more thinking, less looking at stock prices. So I think this one is, is incredibly important because it's just sort of the same thing. Stock prices can really uh, just get you set on the short term. But I mean, my investing style is just very inherently long-term. Um, so like financial news, stock prices, like breaking, uh, breaking news in terms of uh, like general sentiment, those are things that I try to stay away from and just think about, you know, I would much rather spend an hour thinking about, you know, where is e-commerce going in the world? What is penetration looking like versus uh, like obsessing over Trump banning TikTok or something. It's just very like, what's going to be more relevant in a year, two years from now. Um, so the third one, more analysis of competition, less obsessing over trailing multiples. And it, it kind of gets back to the fact of like, where's, where are things going in the future versus what has already happened? Um, I mean, the, the past is obviously incredibly important. It gives you an idea of trends and, and things that could happen. But I, I think it's, it's also important to look at the competition of a company um, because if, if your company is getting way stronger versus competition, there, there's probably a good chance that uh, you know, it, the stock price will follow. Um, so those are the first three. Fourth is more microeconomics, less macroeconomics. And I mean, it kind of goes back to uh, what, what is really going to be relevant in, in a few years because you, you mentioned return on time, and I think that gets to the heart of the issue because if, if you're focusing all your time on things that aren't going to be relevant in a month or, or years from now, then you have to just play catch up with your knowledge base versus if you're compounding uh, knowledge that, that really has an endurance factor, then your time is actually better spent. Um, 
And then the fifth one, more 10Ks, less time reading articles. So, I mean, I, I think, honestly, that, that's one way if I don't have any content for Twitter and I'm, I'm thinking about posting stuff, I'll just pull up a 10K and I inevitably find something interesting that I didn't know about. Um, but yeah, that's a great opening question. Thanks. Great. Yeah. I'd love to double click on that final one. Um, so yeah, I I think what you've put on Twitter about the 10 Ks, there's so much interesting information to find there. Um, I wanted to ask you like why the 10 K as opposed to a call transcript, um, or like the latest 10 Q or the investor deck that uh, you could find on investor relations or or something other than the 10 K. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I guess I don't want to harp on this too much, but I, I think that it sort of gets back to the fact of like, what is the most evergreen information? And I think there's a bunch of great insights. Like I'll, I'll definitely always listen to the quarterly earnings calls and stuff. But I mean, sometimes like, um, for instance, Shopify's latest quarter, they, they really accelerated growth um, because of COVID and e-commerce penetration. But, you know, will that be sustainable in the future versus like actually knowing what the business does, the structural factors that are really more explicit in the 10K? Um, so I think, like I said, it, it just kind of gets back to the fact that the, the more shorter term news is in the quarterly stuff and, and more of the longer term structural aspects of the business is in the 10K. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I mean, I think of the Shopify example, it's kind of represents a view I've heard you mentioned before that you're less focused on uh, 12 month trailing numbers, uh, if at all. And it's all about the future and the three to five year timeline. Um, With that in mind, how do you read a 10k um, to get a sense of what the future is going to look like for a company you're interested in in buying? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think that it, it really compounds. Like if you read one 10K, you would really have no context for you know the industry or what this business actually looks like. So I think the more 10Ks and, and the more that you read, you sort of develop this web of like thoughts and companies in your mind that you're able to then like add new data points to. So if you read Shopify's 10K and then Big Commerce's recent S1 and uh, maybe Adobe's um, 10K for uh, like Magenta, Magento and stuff, uh, you'd sort of like piece together who's growing faster, like what are the revenue bases, and then you can sort of figure out like what does the actual competition look like. So that's one, one aspect. Um, but then the other aspect is just like, how does the company actually make money? I mean, if you go through uh, Fastly's 10K and Cloudflare's, you realize that the business models are crazy different, even though people just lump them together. I mean, Fastly's usage-based, Cloudflare's subscription. Um, and like, how does that actually affect their go-to-market? Um, so you just start asking questions and, and just diving a little bit deeper. I mean, there's so much information in the 10K, but I'd say that's really uh, like just the, the starting point. How does this company actually make money? Um, and then sometimes you'll find big risk factors. Like I think the top 10 customers of Fastly make up like 35% of the revenue. So that's customer concentration. Um, so yeah, you just sort of keep reading and asking questions. And then, uh, I mean, control F is an amazing thing. Just control F certain words that you can uh, click through and that you think are important. Um, there's not really like a, a, a science behind it. It's really just being curious and, and trying to uh, let your curiosity lead you. Yeah, to me, it's a very dense document that uh, can be pretty daunting, even for 
uh, you know, someone who, you know, it was, it used to be my day job to go through 10 Ks and to extract information. Um, so I, I think that's more from a sell side perspective, right? You're just looking for information to make a judgment um, that you can tell to your superiors so they can make a judgment. I guess from the in- investor perspective, in, in terms of your approach, um, I'd love to know, like mechanically, how you read the 10K. Obviously, there's a risk section, there's different tables they break out. There are footnotes, which as an aside, I think it's interesting whenever you hear that people found gold, a gold mine in a specific footnote on a 10K. Um, but are there specific sections you'll pay more attention to than other ones? Um, and like, how do you go about determining what's important when reading a 10K? Yeah, I, I love that question. Um, so there, there are things that I do just to sort of get to the meat of things, because I think return on time is a really underrated piece of being an investor. I mean, you could read every single word of the 10K, but I honestly don't think that would be the best use of your time. There's, prob- there's, there's always like the 80-20 sort of things, um, like 20% of the document probably provides about 80% of the benefit. And so, I mean... Um, I'll, I'll definitely start by reading the entire business section. So that's usually just the section one and that will get at, uh, like how the company makes money, even some history about the company. And then I'll usually jump straight to the MD and a, so management discussion, um, and analysis. And I think that gives you like a lot more, um, detail on like what are the most recent trends so sometimes it'll say revenue grew by this and uh that was because of these reasons and so you can kind of get context for you know why is this business growing why is it decelerating um so those are the first two things business and then the management discussion section and then i'll go to the risk factors usually read like the first five risk factors um i mean some people will read every single risk factor, but a lot of it is just boilerplate language that the lawyers are forced to put on there. And I found like the first 10 uh, risk factors, like probabilistically, you'll probably find the, the like most important risks that they put first. Um, so yeah, I'll just go uh, business, MDNA, and then first 10 risk factors. And then from there, if I have any questions, just start exploring the document. Yeah, that kind of leads me to my next question. So once you've given it a read, I mean, I'm sure you end up with a ton of questions and a ton of notes. There's a lot of directions you could go from there um, just to attach to a a name on it. Uh, I really liked your uh, Twitter write-up on uh, Match Group um, and their 10K. So we could use them as an example or we could use any other company. But let's say you've you've looked at the 10K, you've developed a list of questions or things you're interested in. What's your, your next move? Um, like, are you going to look at more filings or are you going to do industry research or how do you determine how to follow up after that? Yeah. So if, try to answer the questions by then maybe listening to the most uh, recent earnings call. Um, and then I will head to the financials and sort of just plot out the quarterly financials and, and get some trends. So I think that it's, it's really helpful to, um, use the 10k and the financials and sort of like overlay them. And so for instance, if growth for a company drops from 40% to 15% in one quarter, that's, that's a question. Like, why did that happen? And then sort of research in the 10k, why is that happening? If there's not like an explicit answer, then jump to the earnings calls. So it's really just this process of, um, like just asking questions and, and trying to find the answers 
Um, but I think that if you don't have like a purpose for asking questions or like a reason why uh, you're looking at this company in the first place, then it becomes tougher to like know what's important to look for. Um, like I would probably never look at a company that's uh, like contracting in terms of like growth is there's no growth margins are decreasing like you sort of have to know what your personality type is and what sort of companies that uh, you like looking at and then that gives you a little bit more context for like what type like what types of questions you want to ask yeah, you totally uh, precipitated my next question, which was, how do you know what questions to ask? Uh, so that that definitely helps me kind of figure out um, how you go about that. So you figured out your questions to ask. I'll, I'll just keep going with this. You've you've done the research to kind of answer some of those questions. Um, let's say you're reaching a, a, a better comfort level with being interested in the company or interested enough to potentially make a purchase. Um at that point, is it as simple as maybe taking out a small position just to have some skin in the game, or is there additional work before you would actually um, think about buying? Obviously, there's the valuation component. I know a lot of people like to look at charts. Um, what role does that play for you? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I wouldn't say this like differentiates me by any means, but I'd say that I focus a ton of time on competition. Um, so I'll read every 10K of a competitor um, and, and just really understand, like, is this company actually a leader in its space? Cause that, that's something that, um, in terms of like answering questions, that's something that is important to me. Um, like I, I want a company that is really leading because I think there's a lot of, uh, benefits to that. I mean, for one, uh, employees want to work at your company and those great employees will then create better products and then those better products will create more growth. And then it's just sort of this virtuous cycle. So I think, um, leader a leader of a company i mean of an industry is actually really interesting to me um so using that information from all the competitors i'll sort of build uh, a little bit of like a market share map and a, and a competition map to understand is this company actually a true leader um and so that's that's something just like scouring blogs even reading uh competitors blogs uh on their website or reddit threads or even I mean, it's awesome to talk to like ex-employees of um, companies, even competitors and, and just building out like what is, and if you talk to enough people and if you do enough research, you, you sort of understand uh, like, okay, this company is a true leader and there's really nobody close to it. And in, and in those situations, then it's just um, like a quick valuation. Uh, like I'll try not to really look at the, the stock price and, and say, Hey, if I, if I think growth can be out here in, in five years and this is reasonable margin improvement, uh, what does the multiple look like to get, you know, 15 plus return? And then is that reasonable and, and weigh it against the opportunity costs? Um, but that's the big piece of the process really looking into competition. Yeah. It almost seems like a fork in the road where, once you got a sense of the market, then you can make a determination of is this the market leader or are there competitors who seem a bit stronger? Um, let's say you do come to the conclusion that you like the competitors more than the company you're looking at. At that point, would you consider buying some of the competitors or are you basically going to end the process at that point? Yeah, I mean, definitely. If, if I look into a competitor, I'm like, wow, th I didn't really know this uh, but this competitor is actually way stronger than the original company I was looking at. Um, that's definitely happened. Like I've found ideas that I've invested in because I was reading about one company 
and then they mentioned another company either in their earnings calls or whatever and um, ended up doing work on that other one. So you never know where it can lead. And I think that's the thing. There's never really wasted time. You're always building your, your knowledge base, especially if you're looking at things, those evergreen documents that I, I sort of mentioned. Um, there's never really wasted time. It, it always builds on itself. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Um, I think the uh, Cloudflare Fastly example um, you brought up earlier jumped out to me in terms of like, you think these companies are maybe competitors and in some parts of the media, they're made out to be competitors, but they actually do quite different things. Um, in, in a case like that, does that kind of increase the tree of, well, like these are two totally different markets. Um, these actually aren't competitors. Like how, how would the research process change um, if you came across a scenario where the market you thought the company was playing in wasn't actually the market they were playing in? <laughs> yeah, that's a super good question because it's honestly something that I've been thinking about a lot. Like, um, so for Cloudflare and, and Fastly, Fastly really focuses on the high-end customers, you know, Shopify's, Pinterest's of the world that are that are really innovating and, and they need um, like uh, a provider like Fastly to really get the job done. And, and Cloudflare definitely has a different go-to-market where they have um, tens of thousands of, of free customers and they have this huge funnel that they then convert into their paid options and it's subscription and Fastly is usage-based. Um, so it, yeah, it's definitely something that uh, has really piqued my curiosity. And, and in terms of that, I think it is different en enough um, that I, I feel comfortable with like that they're both interesting. Um, but I think also just trying to keep an open mind of, okay, I, I really like Fastly or I really like Cloudflare. And, uh, you know, do I actually think that this market can grow fast enough where there is room for multiple players? Um, so I think that that is maybe like a corollary to the point I made of, of a leader. Sometimes there are just like a couple companies that, um, if you think that they can kind of just grow with these massive tailwinds, then hey, maybe you uh, take an approach where you, you split the position in half and, and use more of like a basket approach for both companies. Um, but that's still something I'm honestly even just trying to figure out. I think they are different enough, um, but it does go against a little bit what I was saying earlier where only try to invest in the leaders. I think in that case, both of them are, are definitely leading and it, it'll be interesting to monitor like, do they start stepping on each other's toes? I mean, Cloudflare put out a, a blog post recently that was basically saying uh, speed isn't everything. And it was really, like, clear that they were taking a shot at Fastly. Um, so, yeah, it's just, you know, monitoring the growth and, and monitoring how the company... Like, if, um, if uh, Cloudflare all of a sudden cuts their prices and that starts cutting into Fastly's... Uh, um, like they partner with other marketplaces like Wix or um, like Shopify, Fastly does to uh, focus on SMBs. And if Cloudflare cut their prices and Fastly had like no chance of getting in there, then it would be like, okay, maybe I have to reassess the situation. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. I think there are enough tailwinds in this sort of edge computing space that both of them could be interesting. Yeah, I think that sentiment is kind of true for parts of SaaS in general. Like it, it seems like as a developer, you know, you, and now I'm working on software every day, there's probably 10, 15 external services I use, all of which I consider mission criticals of the company. So, you know, going back to Fastly and Cloudflare, um, most cases I've seen companies just use one, but you could foresee a situation where both could be in your tech stack. Um, 
with that in mind, like I, I kind of wanted to ask you about total addressable market and um, basically like what makes an expanding TAM and also just what makes a market you want to play in. Cause there are uh, large TAM markets where, but where the margins are super low. So I'd love to hear your thoughts both on um, TAM and then like the metrics that are maybe important as it pertains to uh, customers in that market, whether it's like LTV, um, how much it takes to obtain a customer or anything else you think is relevant. Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I mean, I have a few different views on it because a lot of these companies will put out their, their TAM estimates and, you know, be like, uh, $50 billion. And then it's, it's like, okay, this is our average spend versus how many people we can, uh, how many knowledge workers we think we can reach. And it's like, okay, that, that might be reasonable, but it's so hard to get an idea of like, what is exactly a TAM? Because these things are very fluid. Like if you go back and read um, Salesforce's S1 in whatever year that was, like early 2000s, um, it'll, it'll say that it's TAM, is, it, it won't even use the word cloud. Uh, I forget like the exact phrasing of it, but it's basically even before the term cloud was coined and they, they thought it was uh, you know, like a couple billion. And here Salesforce is years later and it's just orders of magnitude difference. Um, so I think there is that aspect with software, uh, like, you know, the whole software is eating the world thing, but you know, you don't want to get too optimistic about that. These markets will just grow to the sky and there won't be any new technologies that come in or anything. Um, but it is also interesting to look at penetration rates. I mean, I, I saw some data not too long ago that cloud actually is only like 20% penetrated in terms of like the whole IT stack. Um, so if you think about the S curve, there's still like a, a lot of room to grow definitely. Um, so I think that's like one interesting aspect, um, is like penetration. I mean, that's, that's something that I've monitored closely with e-commerce over the years. And it, it was crazy to me, like three years ago, I think e-commerce was only like nine, 10% of total retail. And I mean, you think of Amazon as this company that, you know, hundreds of billions of market cap, even back then. Uh, that it's like, wow, this is actually still early days in the S curve. So that's something that, that I really try to monitor. Um, and then in terms of like the economics of the companies, as this trickles down, I think that it's, it's definitely hard. I, I think that uh, one thing that I look for is, is just growth rates. So is there like a huge tailwind that these companies are clearly benefiting from? Um, and if a company is not benefiting from it, why is that? Um, and then like one thing that I, I'll try to look at is incremental margins versus like what margins are right now. So I'll try to just run the numbers, I guess. So if a company is doing like, let's just use super uh, easy numbers. If a company is doing like a hundred million in revenue and, um, let's say 10 million in, in EBIT or whatever. So it's a, a 10% margin. So that would be like the absolute margin. And then let's say next year it doubles revenue from 100 to 200 and margins go from um, let's say 10 to 30 million. So now we have uh, like a 15% EBIT margin. So margins increase from 10 to 15%. But if you actually look on an incremental basis, you added a hundred million in revenue and you added um, 20 million in EBIT. So your incremental is actually 20%. So that gives you like an idea of what could margins be. Um, and I think that's something that's interesting to look at versus it's more looking forward versus just looking backwards. And that gives you an idea of like 
uh, like what could margins be for this industry? Awesome. Yeah. I feel like what you're getting out of it is, is expect your own expectations, right? Both of the market, whether it follows nest curve or not, and where we are in that S curve, as well as incremental margins and potential for expansion. Uh, I mean, I've been thinking about expectations uh, a ton too, as it pertains to my own investing. And I think one thing I've been trying to think harder about is uh, expectations of the market, right? So you'll look at a stock and think about what it trades at relative to forward revenue. That That's one way of doing it. Um, and there are obviously a ton of others. Um, I'm wondering, like, when you see these industries, like e-commerce is one, where a lot of stuff is priced to perfection. Like, it's amazing to think that Shopify used to trade at five times sales, you know, way back early in its history. And now it's whatever, 80 times. Um, when you see expectations get uh, really high and stuff pretty much priced to perfection, does that impact... Um, your ex- your own expectations at all if you're thinking wow like everybody else thinks this industry is is about to take off like maybe i should give it a a second thought um, right because it, it feels like higher returns would be in something where uh everyone has low expectations of the industry or uh, where margins are going to go and you have a different view yeah i, I mean I, ideally you'd be able to, to see through everything and look at things perfectly rational um I mean, it is definitely tough. So yeah, just all things, which is a interesting phrase, you know, all things uh, equal, uh, you know, 80 times revenue is, is way worse than five times revenue. Um, but it, it, it's, it's interesting to think of that in terms of industries, like where do I have a variant perception or where do I think um, like things are, are overheated? And it, it's, it's tough. I, I don't try to be a contrarian just for contrarian's sake, just saying, oh, the, all these stocks have gone up. They, they can't go up anymore. I think that uh, my style is more just focusing on company by company and figuring out, uh, like, are these expectations reasonable for this company um, to, like, get a, what I want for a sort of IRR and, and really just going by company, uh, company by company. Um, but it is also interesting because I feel like lately in the market, things have really been moving together, like either software is all up or software is all down. Um, so there is some aspect of, of like things just running together. But I, I really just try to break it down uh, company by company. And it, it's really, I mean, I think as you do that and figure out um, like expectations within each company, you sort of like get a holistic view of maybe this industry is sort of undervalued versus what people think. Um, but I think it's pretty hard to have like this macro picture of uh, like the entire, entire swaths of the economy uh, being undervalued relative to what it should be. I think that's very difficult, but if you just go company by company, then you start to naturally get a sense of that. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, I'll put you on the spot here. Have there been any experiences you've had over the last couple of years where you looked at a company or an industry um, and then looked at like trading multiples or, or the stock market in general when, and you're like, wow, I'm totally, I have a totally different viewpoint than the market has or, or vice versa. I guess what I'm getting at is like, for me, it's always been difficult to uh, look at charts and see something trending down um, and be like, well, I'm kind of buying into a falling knife here. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty hard question. I think that um, it, it really, you just sort of figuring, figuring it out over time. I mean, I think that one aspect of investing is like never being too sure in your, of yourself. 
um, which is, you know, there's definitely uh, like positives of having strong conviction. And, but I think that if you have too strong conviction, then you're able to really get yourself in a tricky situation. So I try to be open and be able to change my mind. So I've never really felt like, oh my gosh, this is like a time to just push all my chips in. And, and I really have this crazy view on the market. It's really just been you know, I, I think this company is going to continue to grow for a really long time. And I really like the CEO, really like management and the industry has huge tailwinds and valuation, you know, it, it's looking like stretched, but I think there's still upside. And so it really just felt like that every single company versus, oh, I have this like crystal ball in it. And I think I know what's happening in this industry um, because I, I really just tried to never be too sure. I think that's a really underrated um, piece of being an investor. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think coming from like a daily fantasy sports, um, kind of sports gambling background, like the variation of that in, uh, in gambling is this thing called the Kelly criterion where you need to be careful about sizing your bets, even if you feel absolutely sure, because you know, a 1% chance of losing everything, um, is enough that you definitely have to check yourself at the door. Mm. Um, on, on that subject, yeah, I'd like to hear your thoughts on, um, asset allocation and specifically how to size positions. Um, Cause it, I think it, it can be tempting um, when you have really high conviction on a name to allocate a substantial percentage of the portfolio to it and what percentage that should be. Uh, I feel like I've had differing year views on it throughout the years and there are different investors, you know, some play in a couple stocks, you know, you others like um, I, you know, I just heard a great podcast with Will Danoff um, from Contrafund from Fidelity, his mutual funds in 300 plus stocks. Um, so yeah, I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on kind of how you think about distributing money uh, across different names in your portfolio. Yeah, th there's definitely a tension. I think that if you're an individual investor, um, a great way to get some outperformance is really concentrating on your best ideas. Um, I mean, it, I think... I think really the deeper that you get into it and you're, if you're actually doing deep work on these companies, like by the time, and you're a single person, you don't have like a team of analysts helping you. By the time you get to like 20 stocks, you're like, oh my gosh, listening to all these earnings calls every quarter and like updating on all these company developments, like this is really tiring. So even just from a, a time perspective, um, I think it's pretty tough to have too many ideas. Um, so personally, I try to keep between like six and 12 and it's not really a hard and fast rule. It's just been sort of like, even from a time perspective, I can really sort of manage that and get my hands around it while still looking at new companies. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's definitely tough. You don't want to have like too big of a position, but at the same time, if you have huge conviction and the stock is sort of just run, then um, if you cut that, then it's like benching, you know, LeBron James when he's doing super well, like that cliche. Um, but I, so I have like a few rules that sort of help me with that. I, I try to not take a position like more than 15% at cost. Um, so if it grows into like 25%, but I was at like at 12% cost, then, you know, I'll, I'll let that um, continue. Usually my upper limit is like 30%. I, I wouldn't really want to have a company that like a single company that's more than 30% of the portfolio, just because you have no idea what's going to happen. And if um, that gets cut in half, that's, that's like a pretty big deal for your portfolio. So I might pair it back to like 25%, you know, just like a few rules like that. Um, 
but yeah, I, like right now in my portfolio, I think I have 11 positions and, and the allocations are, are definitely different just based on how things have grown or, you know, um, but those, those are just a, a few things I think about. That, that makes sense. I like the LeBron James comparison. Uh, definitely has had coaches in the past who have benched him needlessly. So it's actually more <laughs> on point than you know. Um, yeah, I'd like to double click both on um, like cutting positions and, and increasing them. So on the cutting side, um, not saying you have cut this position at all, but I'm sure with uh, Alteryx, which was a stock, you know, we talked about a little bit before the show, um, you know, some, some of what's happened over the last quarter, I'm wondering if that's impacted your bull thesis at all or has made you think about cutting back. Ben, are you an Investing City member? I didn't know that. <laughs> I am not. So I, I don't want you to give away your secrets, but um, no, I, I, mean, I do not um, know what's behind that paywall. <laughs> no, that's pretty interesting because, yeah, have, um, have cut it over time. I mean, I do, full disclosure, still do hold it, but um, before earnings and stuff, cut it back a little bit and, and cut it back even a little bit after um, just because it, there's a lot more uncertainty. I mean, if, if listeners haven't heard Alteryx is, uh, you know, analytics, uh, software company and they reported earnings and, um, growth has really fallen off a cliff and that's for like several reasons. I mean, COVID for one, and it's not really like a pure SaaS based. So, uh, they, they do a lot of like onsite implementations and, one thing is the the way that they're accounting. Uh, so since it's not pure SaaS, they, they recognize like 40% of their billings uh, revenue um, up front. And so it's not like perfectly rateable. Um, so that, you know, when things slow down, it really looks like they've slowed down because they're, they're not left with this big chunk of upfront revenue. Um, I mean, it's interesting. They, they've released their whole APA, like the, um, analytics platform automation. And I, I think the company still has a lot of room to grow, but I think there's just more uncertainty in terms of like how mission critical is it? And then there's other companies that are coming out like Snowflake that, that the growth is just mind boggling. And you think like, you know, Snowflake is a company that uh, really allows companies to move data around. And so could Alteryx essentially be like this intermediate disintermediated out by snowflake once they add like analytics capabilities and stuff so there's just like a little bit more uncertainty and growth has definitely dropped off um so yeah i mean <laughs> do you have any thoughts on the company i mean it seems like you've uh, you've followed it yeah actually you know i really was uh i saw your tweet on it and i looked at their last earnings call and kind of went through um some of the investor materials uh, honestly, the, and you, know, you would know more so than I, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I, I found it difficult to make sense of what they actually do and what their value added. So I'd love to hear like your original bull thesis on this and uh, like what you think their value add is. And if that value, add, you kind of mentioned maybe that value adds becoming less important in kind of a post COVID world. Um, so yeah, like what was the original bull thesis here? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, um, I've been like a shareholder for probably three years now and it, it's a really interesting company. I mean, it's had quite a bit of a, a history. It, they were like private for 20 years before going public and then they kept posting 50% growth like year after year. And the way that I think about it is uh, it really like Excel on steroids. So they really talk about the data citizen. 
And it's, it's not, um, you know, people that are, are coding in SAS and uh, R and people that are like actual data scientists. They're really like business analysts that want to get more out of their data. And so I think, I thought there was like a few things like, like one Excel is so widely penetrated and you know, people can do the VBA macros and, and all of that. And you can sort of think of Alteryx as uh, a much simpler way to do like VBA. Um, but it's not quite as technical as like becoming a, a true data scientist. So I thought there was really like, um, one aspect of you could actually cut costs by not hiring um, like a very highly paid data analyst and you could sort of empower your business analysts to do way more with less. And so Alteryx, it is a pretty expensive uh, software. I think like the designer, which is sort of what they land with is like 15,000 per seat. But if you're thinking about like I read a ton of testimonials and uh, customer reviews and stuff. And there was a ton of things that say, you know, after using Alteryx, I, you know, I used to spend five days on this process in Excel and I've literally done it in five hours. And it just seemed like it saved people a ton of time and it really provided uh, like a, a reasonable customer value proposition. Um, and I, I think it still will. There's a huge total addressable market for that. Um, data analysis is, you know, if you can get more out of your data, I think that uh, that will be very valuable. Like that's, that's probably a, <laughs> uh, not a controversial thing to say. And, you know, it's founder led company. The guy had been with the company, uh, you know, since the beginning, obviously. And I thought they were really executing land and expand land with the designer and then upsell over time. And their, their expansion rate was like 130% quarter after quarter. I, I just thought it was very reliable growth company. And I still think it is. There's, there's some things I have to work through, but you know, one thing I'm not like a huge fan is this new APA uh, movement that they're, they're really talking about. I think it is a little bit of like marketing um, where you have like Salesforce cloud service now, and they're trying to become like, you know, this is the APA cloud thing, but uh, I, I really don't, I mean, not, not that they're saying it's a cloud cause technically it's not, but I think it is really more of like a marketing thing and it, it makes things a little bit more confusing. But at the end of the day, they're just like an end to end data platform that enables data citizens to really get more out of their data. Definitely. Yeah. The, the pricing thing, it's interesting you mentioned that too, because that definitely made an impression on me just kind of clicking through some of the products and being like, you know, this is 39,000 for a year, 75,000. Like it's definitely kind of enterprise oriented and that, you know, the people who write those checks definitely are close to the C-level suite or, or definitely at that executive level. Um, you know, just thinking one name, it reminded me of, I've looked at Avalara a bit, um, which is like mm -hmm. a tax provider. They provide like a set of tax APIs, but it's like 40,000 bucks a year per customer. Um, full disclosure, we actually use it at, at the company I, I'm currently at. Uh, but it, it's, it at times can be a clunky experience. You know, I think they provide something that, that's mission critical. You obviously need to calculate uh, sales tax on whatever transactions you're doing. Um, but stuff like that where, um, you know, it's, it's a I'm not saying it's a handful. You know, I, I think they have a lot of customers, as, as does Avalara. But where, like, somebody could say, we're going to go with a different solution um, and cut it out of the, out of the stack, um, that definitely makes me nervous. So on the flip side, mm -hmm. like I used to feel that way about ServiceNow. Like the, the first couple of demos I saw of that um, and Salesforce as well is like the seems kind of clunky um, and, and it seems super overpriced as well. So I, I think as an investor, 
I'm still not sure how to differentiate between um, mission critical versus nice to have. Uh, and I was going to mention to you too, like it, it's interesting, um, like in Cloudflare's calls, like it seems like Matthew Prince is very confident they are mission critical and must have in the tech stack. Um, any thoughts on like how you can make that determination as someone looking at SaaS products? Yeah, I think that's that's a really interesting question because, you know, when COVID uh, was happening and sort of reassessing my portfolio and like what is not mission critical, what is, um, I, I think that if you can figure out churn, um, so if you can uh, find some churn statistics, then that uh, like that's probably the most obvious thing. Like if, if something's actually mission critical, then churn's going to be super low. I mean, if, if your gross retention, like Unity, which uh, just came out today, uh, the gaming engine, the gross retention is like 99%. Um, so that seems fairly mission critical to me because it's probably pretty hard to like rip out to the actual gaming engine that you built a game on. Um, so thinking about like cybersecurity is pretty mission critical. Like if you had to take something out um, and all of a sudden you started getting hacked like that would not be good. Uh, I mean, with, with analytics platforms, like I think that one aspect of this is if a, if um, a product is seat based, so it, Alteryx is seat-based, meaning uh, like the, the more employees that you pay for the software, um, you know, your, your spend goes up. So if, you know, like 30% of your workforce gets eliminated and all of a sudden you have these extra Alteryx licenses, then you're not going to pay for those. And so that's like one aspect where uh, I think that kind of goes, that's where a lot of SaaS is, but um, like that's just one aspect where if, if it's really seat based, then you could see some slowdown uh, versus like a usage based model. Um, you, you might not see that because it's more aligned with like the exact usage of the product. Um, but I, I think there are inherently certain spaces where it is just naturally more critical, like a, um, like a cybersecurity or something like that. And just sort of thinking through, if, if I couldn't use this product, could my business still function? And analytics are very important, but uh, they're, they're really, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, like a, a nice to have. I mean, it is, it is definitely mission critical in the sense of like, we want to grow faster and get more insights out of it, but you could probably get away, you know, get away with just using VBA and Excel. So just really thinking of like, what's my opportunity cost? Um, I think that's, that's another aspect of it. Yeah, that, that's definitely a good way to view it. That makes sense to me. Uh, I guess like the more positive side, um, yeah, we just talked about like conditions necessary maybe to cut a position. Um, have you had situations where a company has had a monster quarter or has made some announcement where it's made you want to increase your position? Yeah, definitely. Um, so there's actually this thing called like post earnings drift. And if you actually do the research, it's, it's a real thing. Meaning, you know, if a stock pops, probabilistically it's going to continue to, to fade higher um, as time goes on, at least in the shorter term. And, and if a stock drops by a ton, um, I think the threshold is something like 15%. Like if it goes up more than 15%, there's more probability. Obviously it's not going to be a hundred percent thing, but um, like it's going to continue to fade. And if it drops by more than 15%, it's going to continue to fade lower. Um, so it's, it's just something to, to think about because when a stock pops, people are very uh, usually hesitant to, to maybe even add to the position. But 
sometimes I view it as like if this quarter was actually way better than even I expected, then maybe the stock is actually cheaper than it was before. And that's like why the stock is re-rating. Um, so this is maybe like too convenient of an example, but Zoom, I mean, last quarter grew 355%. And um, before you saw like in after hours when it popped by like 30% or whatever, before that, the stock is actually much cheaper on a forward like sale um, enterprise value to sales ratio. And so uh, it's, it's sort of interesting that if uh, the stock, like the business completely outperformed your expectations and it's now cheaper, you know, like why wouldn't you actually add to it? Um, so I, I think that there, there's a bias of adding to something that's going up, but if you also view it as, wow, the, the market is actually acknowledging the business performance is amazing, um, then maybe that's like a way to, to make it a little bit easier to add. But it's really a situation by situation thing. Um, just focusing on, you know, like, is there real business momentum here? And, you know, if there really is, then, you know, maybe I might add to my position if it's, if it's not as big as, as I'd want it to be. Yeah, a couple of follow ups on that. Uh, and I'm really trying to refine my own process here. Like, I feel like when a company releases like an 8K if something crazy happens or um, quarterly earnings, which yeah, I think you have to be prepared for, uh, are there like certain tools you use to evaluate those? And what I mean by that, like let's take quarterly earnings as an example. Do you have like your own internal model you'll be looking at results against? Or like how do you kind of answer the question of did this just like enhance my thesis and I want to add? Is this in line or was this a clear miss? Yeah, that's a good question. So yeah, definitely have a internal model where just sort of looking at growth trends and, and margin trends and cash flow trends. Um, and, you know, I'll, tr I'll try to put out what the company said for guidance last quarter, what the, you know, what I'm expecting. And, you know, if this company beats pretty regularly, maybe I can increase my, um, my estimate, but you, you really don't want to get into like the earnings estimate game. I think that's inherently too short term, but I, I think there is some, some validity to uh, almost sizing your positions uh, based on like business momentum. And I think that's, that's definitely a factor because um, like if, if you actually um, run the numbers, I mean, momentum is a real thing in the market. Uh, like, most stocks that are that are leading in terms of like the the relative strength index they they will continue to do well and um you know at least within the next year and so i wouldn't say like i'm definitely not a momentum investor but like if you just look at the probabilities it probably makes more sense to look at the 52 week high list than the 52 week low list um just if you're you know looking at sort of a base rate based on like looking out a year in terms of performance um so, I mean, that's, that's one thing, um, but it, it, is, it is ultimately tough to, to know for sure. Yeah, the, the, I like that of using the, the, the high list instead of the low one, because you definitely, I mean, r right now it's like as you would expect, you know, you kind of, although recently it's changed, um, you, you see like what's leading the market and, and what's uh, kind of lagging. Um, I, I did want to ask, like you mentioned re-rating earlier, and it, it seems like in a lot of... Uh, the incredible growth stories over the last like 10 years, it's not just like the, that the stock grew like earnings or revenue or a combination of the two over some period. 
Um, it's also that like the, there's a significant multiple expansion. I think with, with SaaS, it sounds like you were really early on this. Um, SaaS definitely saw re-rating as a sector from like 2015 to now. Um, like what, if you, uh, a couple questions here. I, I'm having trouble formulating thoughts. Um, like what do you think drives a sector or individual name re-rating? And I guess the follow-up would be, um, are there any sectors or companies you have in your portfolio where you think like a re-rating event could happen given the correct conditions? <laughs> I mean, that's a, it's a really good question. Um, what drives re-rating? I, I think that it, uh, it's, <laughs> I honestly wish I knew. I mean, that would be an amazing way to make money. Um, but once again, I, I think it's hard to like judge a sector of like, this is generally a cheap sector and really nobody knows about it. I think one thing that I try to do is, is focus on, um, sectors that have big growth tailwinds that are hard to understand initially. So, I mean, SAS has really become where, you know, a lot of people know about all the metrics. A lot of people like understand what are the, the basic levers. Um, but I mean, I try to just slowly widen my circle of competence. Like five years ago, I started hearing a ton about uh, the cloud. And so I sort of dug in, what are, what are these cloud companies that I need to know about? Um, and just honestly got a little bit lucky that there's this like huge re-rating. I, I didn't, like even then I, I thought that the multiples were sort of crazy. Um, but really just focus on like company by company, as I mentioned earlier. Um, but I think that's like maybe one thing to think about, like what are, what are industries that have tailwinds? Like there's clear growth here, but it, it's pretty hard to understand. Um, like I think that one area right now that's probably like that a little bit is like personalized medicine. That's, that's, um, an industry that I, I don't really understand, but there, I know there's companies that are, that are growing very quickly and sort of like this picks and shovel, um, like with gene sequencing and, and all of this making, there's just more certainty around biotechs. I think that like with big data and, and a lot of sequencing that they're able to raise the probabilities that products actually work. So that's one thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately and like have made no investments there, but I'm just trying to actively learn in the sector. Um, and who knows if there's going to be like this grand re-rating. I, I just have no idea, but just really following your curiosity and, and trying to learn about things. Um, and then remind me of the second part of that. Yeah. The, the second one was, um, are there any sectors now or, or individual companies you have that you think aren't getting enough credit in the market and a re-rating event could happen given the right circumstances? Gotcha. I mean, yeah, I'd probably say that. I think there's a lot of interesting medical device companies uh, that are coming out right now that um, I, I don't necessarily know if there's going to be like this general re-rating around, uh, you know, medical devices or, or genomics or something. But um, I, I could I could foresee that happening um, just because these companies are uh, maybe like not as widely held. People don't know them as well, but there's still strong growth. Um, so I think that that's maybe a, a fair combination to find a, you know, like a next leading industry. Yeah, th this is perhaps not directly related, but I have seen a lot of people talking about GoodRx and it just having a, a super popular product among customers. I know nothing about the company, but it's been on my list uh, to do some work on it. Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's honestly a fascinating company. Like I, I've 
spent a decent amount of time on the name so far. And I mean, even just learning about the healthcare sector, there's so many hands in the pot. I mean, uh, so I guess just like, don't want to go too in depth because I am, it's, it's a little bit tricky, but, uh, there's, there's PBM. So pharmacy benefit managers, and they basically contract with a drug manufacturer and they're kind of like a middleman between companies that make drugs and the, the health plans, like the um, big insurance companies that do uh, health insurance. And, and most health insurance is really provided through an employer. So there's all these like weird incentive structures. Um, so for instance, the PBM will say to the manufacturer, hey, we'll uh, buy your drugs at this price and then we'll resell them uh, or we'll, like distribute them to the pharmacy and then the pharmacy has a rebate that they pay back to us, which we then give to the health plan. There's like this huge web of just craziness. Um, but basically this PBM that sits in the middle is part reason why um, like prescription drug prices are so high because the pharmacy wants to set the, the, re the price is high enough. So they make sure that they get a rebate from the health insurance companies um, and so good RX actually comes in and, and helps on the portion that is cash. So it's not actually insurance. So you can walk in, um, anywhere you, you get your prescriptions, um, like well, most places nowadays and you have the good RX app and you can just like save money and it just seems like magic, but they're basically giving incremental volume to the PBMs because the, um, that's out of network costs. Um, so I think it, that's like very difficult to understand and I probably got some things wrong in there, but I think that's like an aspect of, of trying to understand an industry that is very difficult to understand. And then as it becomes more consensus, you have sort of like an, an early edge. Yeah, that, that's a great answer. Um, I, I, mean, it, it, I was going to ask you the question of like, do you think there are businesses that kind of the same advantages as the SaaS model that haven't really been recognized as having it yet. And GoodRx kind of sounds like maybe they're in that category. Like everybody gets prescriptions, so it's kind of high recurring revenue. CapEx doesn't seem that bad. And it seems like they, they may be like the chosen solution for this. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's interesting to sort of think like what could the next, the next big industry be? And um, I, I think it's, it's always hard to sort of predict, but um, I think just going back to, to figuring out um, like, is this company growing? Is it their tailwinds? And then digging in to see, you know, what are the competitors? Are there other companies doing this? And if you do enough research and it's like, oh, wow, I, I do have a little bit of a knowledge base and I, I think there's a pretty solid sector. Um, so I, I don't have any like, you know, formal thoughts on that, but I do think healthcare is really interesting right now. Awesome. Cool. I got some quick fire questions for you and then I'll let you go. Um, first one is what name have you spent the most time on in your portfolio, just in terms of pure research hours and reading materials? That's, that's a really good question. I think the answer should be what's the biggest position in my portfolio, but I honestly don't know if that's how it works. Um, there, there are always just like a few companies that are a little bit harder to understand and you, you just have to do a little bit of extra work on them. And sometimes I think that, oh shoot, maybe it shouldn't, you know, it should sort of slap me in the face and it shouldn't be that hard to dig. But there are companies where you can have like a variant perception if you do dig. But I mean, that's like investing, just the both sides of the coin can be true and sometimes they're false and, and there's no like real answers. You just have to be able to like 
have intellectual flexibility, I guess. Um, but I would probably say Roku. Um, it's a company that I've spent a lot of time on. Just understand uh, what are the incentives. Like, it's so weird to see these companies like, uh, I mean, even HBO Max and Peacock just coming out today saying they're not going on Roku. It's like, why is this happening? Is Roku uh, really like that important where they have leverage now? Or are they abusing their position? So, I mean, it just figuring out all of that. And, and I don't think I have it fully figured out, but I uh, just spent a lot of time on that one. Yeah, it kind of feels like a battleground stock right now. Uh, I did, now, since we're on the topic, um, it's interesting, DataZoo actually used to work right down the street from me. I thought that was like a pretty interesting acquisition. Um, any thoughts on like what Roku might be trying to do um, when they acquired DataZoo last year? Yeah, so when they, when they did that, I, I've spent a lot of time in uh, looking at like ad tech and stuff. And so when they did that, I thought it was a clear sign that they were, they were becoming more aggressive because uh, before then they talked a ton about being, you know, this neutral, neutral platform where we can work with all DSPs and, and sort of play nice. But then they acquired DataZoo, which is, you know, uh, clearly a DSP that they're trying to funnel um, revenue into. And I thought that was a, a pretty aggressive move. Um, so, yeah, I definitely think they are trying to cut out some more of the DSPs, like the trade desks. And um, they're, they want to capture more of the CTV tailwinds. And uh, I thought that was a pretty uh, <laughs> clear, aggressive move. And it's sort of interesting. At first, it's kind of scared me, but now it's like, okay, maybe, maybe they're they're playing some hardball, and maybe, uh, yeah, I I think it's that's a really good question. Yeah, definitely super interesting. All right, next one is if the market had a significant correction uh, that impacted all stocks equally. So let's say it's like a thirty percent dip. Um, what would your process be for figuring out what to buy, and do any names jump to mind as names that would be really attractive in that situation? Interesting. So they're all down the same. I think it's, <laughs> it's tough because if they're all down the same, then I'm kind of be in the same boat. But I like typically look at um, like if a company is, I don't think that anything has changed, but it is down like more than a lot of other companies, then I, I might add to it. But uh, <laughs> I, I probably would just hang tight. Cause like, I guess one other thing is I try to stay fully invested. So if everything was down, uh, the same, I, I probably wouldn't shift funds around. So I guess that's a cop out, but <laughs> uh, yeah, it's an interesting answer. What any, uh, in terms of the fully invested, uh, strategy, like, is there a specific reason you do that? I feel like I've always tried to hold like a little bit of cash just for a scenario like that. But then, I mean, you also miss out on all the gains. It's the whole Peter Lynch thing of like, you know, you lose more money waiting for the next correction than in a correction. <laughs> I really do think it gets down to the Peter Lynch idea. Um, I, I think just if you look at the probabilities, if the market goes up every two out of three years, then probabilities are on my side that the, the market will continue to go up. I guess the thing I struggle with is, you know, when valuations get overextended, then are the probabilities like do they actually swing back the other way? But I, I think that's inherently market timing. So I, I really just try to take all of it out of my mind and, and just stay fully invested. I mean, in March when we had the huge crash, it's it's definitely tough to not really have much cash or sort of having to like shuffle around within your companies and it's a little bit more stressful. But I think 
you're probably better off in the longer run um, because let's say, you know, you have 50% cash and the market doubles and then you have a 20% pullback and you're like, okay, I have to deploy my cash. Well, it's like, you're still higher than you were at the beginning. So I just try to keep the probabilities in mind and, and try to stay fully invested, even though it's, it's pretty uncomfortable at times. Um, but you know, I couldn't change my mind on that in the future too. No, I like that answer. That makes sense. All right. The next one is just a, uh, your favorite things one. And I'm always looking for good podcasts, good books and good people to follow on Twitter. So I'm wondering what is your favorite investing book? And also if you could only follow one person on Twitter, who would it be? And if you could only subscribe to one podcast, what podcast would it be? Wow. That's a really good question. Um, favorite investing book. I think, I mean, I'm a big Peter Lynch fan. Uh, one up on wall street first like real investing book I read. And honestly, I think it is still super great. Um, just throwing in another one. I, I really liked uh, Phil Fisher's common stocks and uncommon profits. Um, so that's investing book. Um, podcast. Um, I, I don't want to say invest like the best. I think that's too cliche. Obviously it's a, it's an amazing podcast. Um, there's, I, I really like uh, A16Z, so Anderson Horowitz, they do like a uh, 16 minutes on the news. And I think that's, that's pretty interesting because you get sort of like tech, uh, people who are deep in tech, their, their views on things. Um, but it is also news, so back to the evergreen content, sometimes I, uh, it's tough to, to like know fully, but I think it just get like a snapshot of things that's, that's probably still uh, time well spent. Remind me of the third one, Moose. Oh, uh, one person on Twitter you can follow. Oh, that's so hard. Um, jeez. <laughs> um, I don't know. The first thing that popped in my mind was Bluegrass Capital. I think he's a legend. Awesome. I actually, I'm not sure I follow Bluegrass, so I'll check that out. I've read the Fisher book either, so we'll definitely check that out as well. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Awesome, Ryan. Super appreciate it. Um, if people want to know more about you in Investing City, uh, where can they find you? Sure. So if you just type in Investing City on Google, it'll pop up. And yeah, explore the site. We have a ton of free resources and uh, a research membership where you know the tagline is Save Time, Boost Returns. Um, you can read some testimonials, see our performance on there. But really just love stocks and, and feel free to reach out. Um, have open DMs on Twitter. So investing underscore city. Feel free to reach out. Love hearing from people. But uh, yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Ben. Awesome. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of Stock Talking and read a blog with my latest trade recommendations, market commentary, and more, visit postcoronastocks.com.